2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll look at verses 1 through 16 um, this morning. From each of us, we might have uh, sacred places. Maybe some of you have places that you love to go because they bring back certain memories in your life. I'm a pretty sentimental guy, so myself, I have, uh, I love walking around on the little Washington waterfront because that's where I propose to my wife. Um, I love being in downtown Wake Forest. My wife and I got married in a little gazebo uh, of, a, of a park right there in downtown Wake Forest. So I love that area. And so for me, it's sort of a, a sacred place to walk along those streets and remember those times um, with my wife. Perhaps you have a sacred place like that. Perhaps it's maybe your old childhood neighborhood or your childhood home. And maybe for some of you, it's a, it's a sporting team and you love the sacred place for you to go is that stadium or, or wherever that event is held. And so um, for many of us, we have that. Some of us, maybe it's even a church. Maybe a church is seen as a sacred place. Maybe the institution even of a church is a sacred um, place for you. Um, However, what we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is that God isn't so much focused on a place. Places can be sacred for us. However, God doesn't need a place to relate to us. And that's one of the things that separates Christianity from really other religions. For Muslims, the sacred place that they look to is Mecca. For Buddhists, it's the Bodhgaya. For Mormons, it's the Salt Lake Temple. For Roman Catholics, it's the Vatican. For the Jews, it's Jerusalem. And Christians, we certainly have places that we can visit. We can take trips to Israel where Jesus walked. We can see the River Jordan. Perhaps we can see where Jesus was uh, perhaps close to where he died. Or maybe we even see where he was buried and resurrected. But for the Christian, these are just places. Because Christianity isn't based on a place but a person. Because we don't worship a God that is somehow mystically connected to a temple, a statue, or a city. We don't worship a God who is dead. We worship the only true and living God. And this is why Christianity isn't based on a place but a person, and obviously that person is Jesus. Now, this is good news when we think about Christmas. In order to celebrate Christmas, we don't have to all gather and and visit a specific place to get closer to God. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem. We don't have to travel to Bethlehem. Yes, we might go to uh, church services, but the reality is we are always celebrating and worshiping Christ as we are living our lives through this season and really all seasons. And so my hope is this passage in, in 2 Samuel 7, I want this passage of Scripture this morning to, to lead us into that understanding of worship that God is always with us. 2 Samuel 7 is really the unfolding of the Christmas story, believe it or not. It shows us how God is going to set up his kingdom here on earth through not a place but a person. But here's the beauty of this message. Now, we, can, we have the temptation to read things like First and Second Samuel that are historical narratives and only read them as historical. Or maybe perhaps we read them only as theological. But what I want to show you this morning, there's an, an incredible beauty in this passage because not only is it historical and theological, but it's highly practical. And I would argue that, it's, that in many ways it's very devotional um, in nature as you understand the implications of it. And so whether you know this or not, but to understand... 
the birth of Christ, you actually have to understand in some way the life of David. Throughout scripture, there are three significant facts that continually show up around the birth of Christ. One, that Christ is going to come from the seed of a woman. We see that in Genesis chapter 3, that the promise of this redeemer is going to come from the seed of a woman. Then you see later on that he's going to come from the offspring of Abraham. And then also we see that he's going to come from the lineage of David. Both the New Testament and the Old Testament have constant reminders of these three things. But the idea that Jesus comes from the lineage of David is first described in 2 Samuel chapter 7. At, the, at this point in 2 Samuel 7, this is David's life. His life is finally at peace. God had brought him from being a shepherd boy to a king. Saul was no longer king. David was. All of their enemies have now left them alone. The Ark of the Covenant that has been taken away from the Israelites has now returned. All is seemingly well with the the world. David was brought from this point of being low to being the greatest king in Israel's history. And in 2 Samuel 7, we find him sitting in his palace, and he's reflecting on the goodness of God. He's reflecting on the goodness of God, and now David wants to sort of give an offering up to the Lord. And that's what we see in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So I want you to imagine David here. He's sitting in a swanky palace. He's looking around his giant infinity pool. He's got a home theater. He's got a a, a garage full of classic rare cars He's made Israel great again, but he is actually a man after God's own heart. And we see, (laughs) she got it, all right. And we see David's heart because he sees the Lord's generosity in his life. And his generosity is in leading him to be generous to others. And friends, that should be all of us. So David wants to build this house for the Lord. This is what other nations did for their gods. Other nations would build a temple or a shrine to their god. Think about the ancient pyramids. You see a person who's held in honor. And so what, what do they do to honor this person's life? Is they build this magnificent structure to say, hey, this person mattered to this world. And what's amazing is that some of these pyramids even still stand today. And so David wants to build something like that to the Lord to remind the people of his reign. So he tells the prophet, Nathan, that he wants to build the structure. Nathan, a prophet in those days, was sort of like a preacher. He would hear from God, but he would hear audibly from God and then communicate what God's word was to the people. And we can tell that Nathan really is a preacher because what happens is a rich guy, David, comes to the preacher and says, I want to build a big, a big building for the kingdom of God. And we know he's a preacher because he says, great, do that is all that is in your heart, the Lord is with you. I love that. He's exposing that he's really a preacher. Little does he realize that Nathan, uh, this, little does David realize 
that this is not what God wanted. This is not what God needed. He didn't need a building. He didn't need a structure. He's going to establish his reign in a different way. And I would argue he's going to establish his reign in a better way. We're going to see how. Verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my uh, to dwell, dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? See, right here, God explains why he doesn't need a physical house to dwell in. What's the reason that he gave? He says, I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Verse 6, verse 7, in all places where I've moved, I've moved with my people. You see, God is the type of God, we serve a God who actually wants to live with his people. His people are wandering. What's he doing? He's wandering. He's with them. His people are settled. What's God doing? He's settled. He's with them. God experiences what his people experience. God didn't want to live in a house because he wanted to be with his people. His people has needs. His people have wants. He wants his people to have rest. God wanted to be with his people to give them rest. And also he reminds David that he, not only has he been this way with Israel, he's also been this way with him. Look in verse 8. He says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off all your enemies before you. You see, God is reminding David of his omnipotence, which is his, his, he's all powerful. And it's almost comical if you step back and you think about it. And it's not that David is a fool. David's heart is to honor the Lord, but it's kind of funny. I mean, think about it. He's like, hey, God, I'm going to build you a temple. And God's saying, That's cute. I'm the one who brought you from being a shepherd boy to being a king. It's kind of like when our kids buy us a Christmas present. It's like, great. Where did you get the money to do that? (laughs) Came from you, right? You gave them money to buy you something. That's how that works. Mom, you know, she, whatever. But it's the same. Hopefully you have joint bank accounts, right? Healthy marriage, right? But it comes from the same place. And so he's like, That's adorable, David. You're going to build me a house out of Legos. Wonderful, right? I don't need it. I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. And so God reminds David where he came from, from helping him reflect on his power and his work. He says, you've seen me take you from a shepherd boy to a prince to a king. You've seen me deliver you from your enemies. But here's the thing. 
You have no idea what I'm doing. You don't even realize that we're just getting started in this. Look at the second part of verse 9. He says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of Israel. The great ones of earth, rather. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be distributed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will make and, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now here's what's incredible about all this. First of all, David's understanding of a dynasty is building a physical house for the Lord, but the Lord is saying that his plans are so much more. And secondly, there's nothing here that is conditional. He's not saying that once Israel does this and then you do this, it's going to happen. No, he says, it's going to happen. I'm going to establish this. And now, as he explains this, this is really, verses 12 through 16, is the story of Christmas. Look in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him like a a, a father who shall be a son to me when he commits Iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took him from Saul, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, if you read these verses, it it could seem a a bit confusing. It seems like he could be talking about Christ. But the problem is, he says, when when he commits iniquity, I shall discipline him. So clearly, he's not exactly talking about Christ. But in a way, he is. And I'll explain to you in just a moment. He's here, immediately, he's talking about someone else. Because obviously, committing iniquity, that would exclude Christ because Christ was perfect. So who could God be talking about? Well... To understand this, we have to know that there are two types of prophecies that are happening. One is a, that would be a near fulfillment, and another one would be a far fulfillment. In the near fulfillment, God is referring to David's immediate offspring. Who is David's immediate offspring? His name's Solomon. You know the story of Solomon? It begins really with David's sin in 2 Samuel 11 when he sins with Bathsheba. But that actually births Solomon. Not Michael, his wife. It wouldn't be her. We saw it last week, the reasons why. But now it's going to be Solomon's coming from David and Bathsheba. And from Solomon, we, we understand that Solomon was um, one of the wealthiest wisest men in all of scripture 
David has no idea how this is all going to unfold. He doesn't know that he's even going to meet Bathsheba at this point. So he knows that there's going to be some near fulfillment that he's going to continue David's lineage. But there's not only just a near fulfillment, but there's also a far fulfillment. And this is where God is referring to Jesus. And here's how we know that. Because in verse 13, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Then verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Three times this word forever is mentioned in this section. So how could it be possible based on verse 12 that he's going to do that? Because what's verse 12? He tells David, you're going to lie down with your fathers. You're going to die. So how is it that he's going to die, but he's going to establish his kingdom forever? Well, clearly there's a near fulfillment that's in Solomon. He's like, but your name's going to live on. But the problem with Solomon is that he's also a sinner. You see it in verse 14. He's like, when he sins, I'm going to discipline him. So the kingdom, how can it be sure in the hands of a sinner? If you know anything about Solomon's morality, it's surely that he cannot be secure under his rule. You think David had problems. You look at the life of Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He had 99 problems and women were all of them. In fact, Solomon was known to marry women outside the the tribe of Israel who who worshipped pagan gods. And what happened is as Solomon would marry these women, he would also worship their gods. But here's what I want you to see. Even the midst of all of that, God still says to Solomon, I'm going to establish your throne Forever. He tells David, I'm going to establish your throne forever. And here's what I want to show you. I want to show you what God says to Solomon when he worships the God of one of his wives. 1 Kings 11, verse 9. He says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Verse 12. Yet for the sake of, your, of, of David, your father, I will not do it in, the day, in your days, but I will tear it out of the hands of your son. However, I will not tear it away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now, what we see in this is that as long as the descendants of David are rebellious and disobedient. The promise of David's kingdom cannot be established. In fact, this idea is constantly repeated throughout uh, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. For example, First, First Kings two four. He says, "If your sons pay 
close attention to their way to walk before me in, your, in, in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. These words are constantly repeated throughout the, the Old Testament. Israel knows that in order for this king, this kingdom, this everlasting kingdom to exist, it would require a son of David, an offspring of David to, listen, perfectly obey the Lord. Furthermore, from Solomon on, every time that a king would turn from the Lord, the, the nation of Israel would begin to crumble. So Israel, they longed to see this obedient son, this obedient offspring of David. And no one would suffice. But God promises that there would be an everlasting kingdom from David's offspring. And it was so explicit that when we see this narrative in 2 Samuel 7, when Nathan tells David about about this promise that he actually mentioned Saul, he said, It's not even going to be like Saul where I took this kingdom away from him. And then his offspring just ceased to exist. He says, your offspring will continue. And so what would God do? How would God fulfill this promise? Because if it requires a perfect king, no one will suffice. So what does he do? Well, he intervenes. God intervenes. And by the way, if he doesn't intervene, this isn't going to happen. Because no one is perfect. No one is faultless. No one is sinless. So God would have to raise up a righteous, obedient son of David to take the throne. And this is exactly what the prophets Isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel, promise. For instance, we see it in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In the days of Judah, uh, in, in, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And, and this is the name by which he is called the Lord is our righteousness. What does Jeremiah say? He says, it's going to be the Lord. It's going to be the Lord who takes the throne. Isaiah says it even more explicit, and we see this all over postcards and signs on Christmas. Isaiah 9, verse 6, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and how long? Forevermore. So here's what the prophets are saying. The covenant of David lies ultimately in the fact that God himself will come as a king and sit upon the throne. And then if you look in Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of the family tree of Jesus, how does Matthew chapter 1 begin? Matthew 1.1, it says the book, the genealogy of 
Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you go on down and you begin to read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you go all the way down through all of these imperfect kings, David, Solomon, and their offspring, and their offspring, and their offspring, all the way down to verse 16. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. 990 years later, from the line of David, Joseph and his wife Mary went to Bethlehem, the city of David, to give birth to a son. And what will his name be called? We see it in Luke chapter 1. It says, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And so what we just did is we took this story in 2 Samuel 7, and we zoomed way way out. And all of this came from David telling the Lord, I want to build you a house. And God says, David, I don't need a house. It's not how I'm going to establish my kingdom. I am going to establish my everlasting kingdom quite simply by just being with my people. Who are his people, you ask? It wasn't a promise for just the Israelites. It was a people that will be gathered from all around the world of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It was men and women. It was rich and poor. It was sinners. It was the self-righteous. And God says, through my one and only son, I'm going to Establish this everlasting kingdom. Not through a place, but through a person. And Ezekiel says that I will be their God and they will be my people. What does the word Emmanuel mean? God with us. So believer, what does it mean to you That God wants to be with you this much. He doesn't say, if you want to meet with me, come to my palace. Come to my monument. Come to my city. Make sure you're worthy. Make sure you're wealthy. Make sure you're religious enough to come and see me. No, what does scripture say? He seeks and saves that which is lost. And because there was no one righteous to take the throne, God sent his son, the king of the world, to live a perfect and sinless life, to be born perfect, born of a virgin, didn't carry the curse of sin that we all carry, and lived this perfect, sinless life. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we were condemned to die. And he rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty of Satan's sin and death, the penalty that we all deserve. And he did that because now he sits on the throne 
As God said to David, I will establish your kingdom forever. He had no idea. David had no idea that he was talking about uh, birth, perfect sinless life, death on the cross, resurrection from the grave. But that is exactly what God meant. How would he establish his kingdom through a perfect king and through a perfect sacrifice? And so now God is reigning over this entire world. And that even when we die, if we're believers in Christ, we'll have eternal life and we will live with him and we will enjoy him forever. How much does it mean, friends, that God wants to be with you this much? Might that change the way that we approach Christmas? Might that say when we look at a nativity scene, and we look at the little baby, and we say, this is God saying, I didn't build a house for you to come to me. I came to you. I came to you. When we see a star, he's reminding you, I came to you. I sought you, and I bought you, and I purchased you with my blood. When we hear a song, he's saying, I came to you. Even if it's a trashy rendition of a classic song, it's still, I came to you. Friends, all of this are reminders that everywhere of this simple truth, God with us. He wants to be with you. And sadly, we miss this beautiful, simple truth, even this time of year. We find ways to get distracted from this wonderful truth. All the material things that we long for, all the relational things that we long for during Christmas, all the loss, all the heartache that we often see during Christmas. But Jesus says, I've come for you. I've come for you. I'm with you. I want to be with you. And so I want to end this morning by showing you how really all of scripture ends. And interestingly enough, God's word ends by reminding the churches of his promise to David that God wants to be with you. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have set, sent my angel to f- testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let, a, let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Friends, everything that you long for, is here because he's already with you. He's already present here and he just invites you to come. If you're thirsty, come. If you're hungry, come. If you're hurting, come. If you're ashamed, come. If you feel unworthy, he says, come. He says, I want to be with you. That's the whole purpose of this time of year. That's the whole purpose of Christmas, everything that you long for is found not in a place, but in a person. 
and that person is Jesus. So may we meet with him this morning.